I'm Tupelo Tom. And I'm Big Lou. And And we're we're talking. So, Tom, I told you about how I got into Elvis, and and everybody has their how they got into Elvis story. What is yours, besides being from Tupelo? Well, besides, it's pretty much all of it. Uh, (laughs) I moved to Tupelo with my parents. They did the driving when I was three. Uh, My dad was an Air Force recruiter, and this was his uh, next station. I was born in Roswell, New Mexico um, at Walker Air Force Base. So that explains a lot. It does explain a lot. That's what people say. Uh, In the same hospital where Demi Moore and John Denver were born, actually. Mm. So I have that in common. But um, moved to Tupelo when I was three, and from kindergarten through um, most of my young years, I went to the schools that Elvis went to. My kindergarten was at Lawhorn, which is where Elvis went to grade school. So Elvis was just kind of... um, I say Elvis is kind of like that, that brother on the first season of Happy Days. He was there. And then the second season, they just never talked about him again. But yeah, you, you knew he was out there somewhere. Yeah, Elvis was kind of always just a part of the the town. And again, this is the 60s. You know, I'm in first grade in 1966, 65, 66. So Elvis is making movies. And I knew he was from there. I mean, the birthplace was right there. There were signs everywhere, birthplace of Elvis. And I'm an only child. So he was an older brother that felt like family, that voice, because you're an only child. I had a lot of time to listen to to records. Well, Tom, let me ask you this. You went to that school that he went to, and it's over there behind the, is it Johnny's, right? Yeah, behind Johnny's, right? Yeah. Was there a presence of Elvis there? Did they talk about, oh, this is where Elvis's room was. This is the desk he said. Was, was any of that going on? It was, I mean, kindergarten, no, but uh, fifth grade, by fifth grade, yes, it was, um, because I went to fifth grade there, um, it was very much talked about that that was the stage, and now I'm a little older, you know, I'm in fifth grade, and um, yeah, it was talked about then, and the birthplace was going, and there were, uh, there's just a lot of talk about Elvis, and then I went to, then my seventh and eighth grade was Milam which is, um, and I remember distinctly remember at Milam as a joke, you would get issued, you know, state textbooks and you had to write your name in the front. And there was a big bunch of blocks, you know, there were people that had had it before you. And I would always go back like seven or eight people and erase that name and then write Elvis Presley <laughs> and then rub it out a little bit where it looked worn. I said, Hey, look, I've got Elvis's math book. Even though, you know, like the book had been published in 19, you know, 61 or something, you know, just as a joke. Uh, so Elvis was just that, that older brother that was just p- kind of part of my life that was always here. And I'd go to the movies, t- uh, to the Lyric Theater and see new movies with Elvis. I remember seeing Live a Little, Love a Little new when it was in theaters. And I was buying Elvis records when I was little. Um, I distinctly remember buying uh, That's the Way It Is. Uh, in 1970 when I was 10 mm. uh, with birthday money. Wow. So, you know, and, and my birthday's three days before Elvis's. So I always used to have uh, birthday cakes that you used to always say, happy birthday, Tommy and Elvis. So he was just, he was just always here. He's just, he was just part of the city here and, and uh, always there. And among a city full of Elvis fans, it's, it's interesting You'd think Tupelo at the time would be full of Elvis fans, but there were a lot of people here that still remembered him and remembered his family. So they knew him. It was not fan. They knew him. Uh, wow. Because it had only been 10, 15 years that he had been yeah. gone. Yeah. 
Where did you buy the record at in Tupelo? There was a record store on West Main um, over by the, by it's a church now, but the Malco theater uh, where I ended up working as a teenager, I've only had two jobs. I worked at a movie theater and uh, I've worked in television and radio and that's pretty much it. Uh, But there was a record store that I used to go to that's no longer there. That's a jewelry store now. And the lady that ran it knew I was an Elvis fan. And so I would keep up reading in a music magazine at the library because that's how you had to. It's a big building with books inside uh, and they'd let you take them home. But they got Billboard magazine at the library and I would go to the library and keep up with when Elvis had a record coming out, either an album or 45. And he churned them out pretty quickly. You know, throughout the year, there were a lot of there's a lot of product that I was mowing yards for. And she would keep a picture cover for me of a 45. Like she would maybe get seven or eight copies of a 45. Most of them had the hole where you could see the label, but one or two would be the picture sleeve, which was the full photo of Elvis. And down at the bottom, it would say, you know, from the album, Aloha from Hawaii or whatever, pushing the next product. Again, a Colonel Parker thing, always promoting the next product on the product you just bought. And she would always hang on to a picture sleeve for me. And I would go ride my bike over and pick it up and, and come home and play the record or play the, and I, I would get the Elvis albums and I would always put the receipts inside from when I bought them. Cause I knew, cause I, you know, I knew that was going to be important in my museum one day. Cause I was, <laughs> I saved everything in anticipation of there being a museum. Uh, but my dad always used to say, you know, son, uh, the sign says Tupelo birthplace of Elvis. It's never going to say and tom brown lived here too he said you need to tell people you're from verona which is like a little town next door to tupelo you know i could own i could own verona but i'm from tupelo <laughs> tom brown can be the verona sign tom brown lived here <laughs> that's right yeah uh but one time as a gift the people at the birthplace did give me a big green uh highway sign uh that says uh, tupelo mississippi home of tom brown that's great they did the birthplace did give me a big sign about that so i would buy the records when they came out so when you're saying you listen to old time's sake uh in 77 i you know i bought it when it came out in 73 wow and i saw elvis in concert in memphis at the mid-south coliseum in march of 74 which was the the concert recorded live for the album elvis is recorded live on stage at the mid-south coliseum which the cover is the front of Graceland. So we have these stories when we were younger. You have probably the coolest when I was a kid I saw story, and that's when you were in Memphis at the gates and Elvis is pulling out of Graceland, and you got a picture to prove it. Yeah, well, and and it's it's something I, I used to do even before that day. Um Growing up in Tupelo, my mom was good friends with Janelle McComb, who was a a lady here in town that I knew at the time was friends with Elvis and was instrumental in getting the birthplace open as a visitor site and um, a museum and, and, and just in honoring Elvis. And and she was the one that asked Elvis in the mid 70s, you know, what can we do in Tupelo to, to help honor you? And he said, I wish the fans had a place to. Uh, to go to, to meditate like I do outside by the pool. Uh, if you do anything, you should build that. And so the medit- there's a meditation chapel. There's a chapel on the property of the birthplace that was here. And I'm not talking about the church, the first assembly of God church. That's also here that they just recently moved in the last you know five or six years. 
onto the property of the birthplace, but a chapel that you go into, it's very small. And the way it's positioned is when you look up at the altar behind it, out the window, you see the birthplace. He just wanted a place for fans to be able to go into, to get a, to get in a quiet place. Hmm. So anyway, Ms. McComb was a friend of my mom and I would see her at the house all the time. They'd be all sitting in the kitchen smoking and, uh, <laughs> and I, I would come through and, and I didn't ever want to bother her. I never wanted to, you know, ask for anything from her. Um, because I still, I wanted to hear stories she had to tell about, you know, I, I went to Memphis and I saw Elvis and I would always see her and I'd say, Hey, um, Hey, Ms. McComb, just tell Elvis Tommy said, Hey, uh, cause I'm still Tommy in Tupelo. And, and one time I said, Hey, uh, Ms. McComb, I was going outside to do something. And I said, Hey, you know, be sure to tell Elvis Tommy said, Hey, and she said, Hey, I've got something for you. And I said, Oh, oh, okay. And it was an envelope and she, inside the envelope, it was a, a picture of Elvis, um, like a promotional picture of Elvis that's kind of a painting in a white, it's in the white, I got lucky jumpsuit. And he's, and it's got a printed on sincerely Elvis autograph on it. And that's what I saw. And I thought, oh, well, this is cool. On the back of it is a big thing about the world's largest teddy bear. It's just a promotional <laughs> photo. But written in pen down the leg from the printed on thing, it said, to Tommy, um, best wishes, Elvis Presley. Wow. And I was like, and she goes, and that's not all I got you. And I'm like, I'm stunned. I'm 11, 12. Uh, and uh, she handed me a red scarf that she said uh, he was, he came off stage and was in the limo with her at a concert and took it off and said, Hey, give this to that boy in Tupelo. So, uh, okay. And I still have that. And I, and, and when you're, 11 or 12 years old. Yes. I thumbtacked that photo up on the wall. It's got like thumbtack <laughs> holes in it because you didn't handle stuff with white gloves. Cause you mm -hmm. know, you're 11 and right. you're, you know, and you're hanging it up and I took it into school and showed everybody. I mean, it was one of those kind of things. Now I've got it in glass and it's up on the wall, but you know, it's, it's lived in. And then one time she came when I was 14 and she said, Hey, I've got you tickets to see, to see Elvis in concert. And he was doing several shows at the Mid-South Coliseum. And the tickets that she got us, I, can't, I think it was on a Wednesday night, a Tuesday night. It was a school night. And he had been doing uh, matinees on Saturday and Sunday and weekend shows. And my mom is like, couldn't you get us the tickets for the weekend? And I'm just thinking, <laughs> be quiet. And she said, no, well, the reason I got you these tickets is because this is the show they're recording to be on an album. And you want to mm. be, be at this show. Yeah. And so the, the, the weekend prior, uh, my mom was going to Memphis shopping and she would, we would, she would go to Memphis like every couple of months shopping and she would drop me off. It was a different time. She would drop me off at the gate of Graceland and I would hang out there while she went to Goldsmith's to shop. And I got to know uncle Vester. There were always people hanging around, but I would just hang out and I talked to uncle Vester and he knew I was the kid from Tupelo and I talked to him. And so that weekend that he's doing a matinee, before the show that they're going to record, my mom drops me off and there's a group of people there and I figure I'll hang out here. I'll maybe I'll see him leave or something. And sure, sure enough, um, I'm over looking at the gate. I'm on the right-hand side outside by the hinge of the gate next to the guard shack. And uncle Vester says, Hey, Tommy, get back now. We're, I got to open the gate. They're coming down. And a couple of cars came down and then a black limo came down with um, like a long stretch limo with a lot of people inside. And I could look in and I could see Joe and I could see Linda and I could see Elvis on the other side, on the passenger side in the back seat. 
And I was like, oh, he's on the other side. But I was waving and screaming and everybody was waving and screaming. And he'd left and Uncle Vester said, oh, you've got to see him. And because this is the first time I'd seen him, I would go hang out at the gate. He wasn't even there, but I didn't care. Wow. And he's and Uncle Vester says, you know, he's on his way to the Coliseum. The show's an hour. He'll be back in an hour. And he always sits in the same place. So if you stay right there, he'll be right next to you when he comes back because he'll be on that side. And I said, I'm not moving. <laughs> and I, I guess an hour passed and an hour passed and Uncle Vester says, OK, you guys get back. And, you know, I'm opening the gate and everybody got back. And the limo came and slowed down as it went up because, you know, there's a lot of people around there. Limo's going slow up through the gate. And Elvis is two feet away from me. And all I remember is black hair, black sideburn, purple sunglasses, and a hand in that Elvis pose waving, looking at me through that side window uh, on the on the limo, looking right up at me. And I'm looking at him and I'm waving and he's waving. And he slowly just went on up the hill and my mom came and picked me up and people asked me like, did you get a picture? And I'm like, Nope, but I only need a picture to prove it to you. If I want to see that, I just close my eyes and I can see it exactly. Now I told that story a couple of times on stage at Graceland and somebody went into the archives of the, either the Memphis commercial appeal or the, the press cemeter. Memphis had two newspapers at the time, a morning paper and an afternoon paper. And somebody found a photo of Elvis leaving Graceland for that matinee. And it's a crowd of people, much more people than I remember uh, there, but it's the car leaving for that matinee. And I I posted it on my Facebook page and I just put a big red arrow down to the shadowy (laughs) figure that's over by the gate. Cause I'm not in the front of the photo. Cause I was holding position, you know, over there by the gate, uh, the hinge of the gate. So that's my picture with Elvis is he's in the limo on the other side and I'm this little shadowy figure by the gate, but it was, he was a real person and he lived right there and he just was up the road. And when you're going to school in Tupelo and I knew, I, I knew I was going to be on TV or radio. I knew it from, it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Even before I saw Johnny Carson, I knew that's what I was going to do. I was going to be on TV or the radio and I'm not an inherently social person. I'm not an outgoing person, but I just loved the thought of being on TV or the radio. And, and they didn't offer that in school. So I was going to have to figure out how to do that. But growing up in Tupelo, I knew it would happen because look what this guy did. Hmm. I mean, when you're growing up in a small town in Mississippi and you're thinking, what in the world am I going to do? Oh, wait a minute. I can do anything. Look, look what he did. Wow. Pretty good, pretty good example for kids in in Tupelo, especially. That's, that's incredible. Well, it's an interesting thing for me because like I said, being from Tupelo and and having that. So I go into television and end up in doing radio and TV and, and become an entertainment reporter. And, uh, I majored in theater and broadcasting because I figured they didn't offer the Johnny Carson as a major, but I figured (laughs) if I did both of those things, I could figure it out from there. And I had a great advisor who at Ole Miss who, um, helped me decide what to, what to do with my career. She's like, son, you're not going to be an actor. So you need to learn everything about acting. So you can act like, you know, what you're doing when you're doing other stuff in your life. So it came in handy. And like I said, I'm not an outgoing social butterfly kind of person. So it's, it's, it's in, I can turn it on when I have to, but I'm really not. And 
doing all these things and these jobs, it brought me to, uh, I, I was, I started working in Tupelo at my local TV station. The, uh, the, I started TV the night I took the last test at Ole Miss when I was 22. And, uh, that was in 1982. So in December of 2022, I, it was 40 years in broadcasting. That was 40 years of doing TV and radio. Wow. And it's great because my dad was in the military and he said, son, if you find something you love doing, like I do, you'll never go to work a day in your life. And that's kind of how it's been. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So anyway, my career takes me to, um, I'm, I'm in Shreveport for a couple of years. I'm in St. Louis for about 10 years. I go to LA for a couple of years working on a national show for TNT entertainment reporter. And I specialized kind of in stories about old Hollywood. I got to go to Rod Steiger's house and hang out with him for a day and wow. met, met Tony Curtis and all these people. Tony became a friend, but that's a, that's a separate entire episode of the podcast. And our, then our, our show got canceled. Uh, and, and I'm like, oh, no, now I'm out of work in Los Angeles. And I always knew I was going to end up in L.A. I used to have a map of Los Angeles on my bedroom wall when I was a kid in grade school learning how to get around in LA. Cause I knew I'm going to live here. I need to look, I need to know where the streets are. I knew how to drive around in LA before I ever got there. Incredible. And yeah. And in LA with a show that's just gotten canceled, what am I going to do? And the big man from Turner came to tell everybody, uh, they were let go. And he said, Hey, I've got a position open at Turner classic movies running the production department. And I, and I was my own producer on my stories, so I knew how to put together, you know, video pieces. And he said, would you consider coming to Atlanta? And, you know, I think you'd be perfect for this job because your your first love in, in movies is, is, is classic Hollywood. And again, there's that just ready to go. Um, TV production. I need somebody in, with TV production knowledge that knows classic Hollywood. Well, I'm your guy. And so I moved to Atlanta. I was there 17 years at Atlanta working at Turner Classic Movies. In 2000, Warner and Warner Brothers uh, and Turner were all in the same company family, Time Life or Time Warner. Time Warner was Time Warner at the time. It's been through so many things I can't remember. <laughs> but Time Warner owned it. And so we worked a lot with Warner Brothers and they had these this Elvis project coming up on That's the Way It Is. And they said, you know, we think within the company, they said, Tom should be involved in this because he's the Elvis guy. So I, I kind of got to work on it with in pre-production and with Rick Schmidlin, who put the piece together and got to work on it from the Turner side and actually got to write when it was on TCM, it, it, it ran with a uh, video piece before it that talked about in 1970, this movie came out and, and now we've redone it and it contains, it's the real, it's the first Elvis movie that shows you the real Elvis and cause they had recut it and put a lot more performances in it and things. And so we were going to have a premiere of that's the way it is in Memphis. And I, I, again, I've met no one from Graceland. I'm working with Warner brothers. When I would go to, I would go to LA from Atlanta and work with Warner brothers on this movie. And when I went to, I had to go to Memphis to a meeting with Graceland to do this stuff. And I'm in there with a bunch of Turner people. And there's a huge table at corporate at Graceland. And you've probably been in that room, Jeff, that giant, yes. huge round table that I think they built the building around that table. Cause I don't know how you get it in. And we're sitting around and we're talking and there's, you know, 20 of them and 20 of us. And I'm talking about, oh, they're talking about the fact that I was the one that caught, they were going to release it, the, 
the VHS was going to be released with a photo of um, Elvis on, it was an Elvis in a jumpsuit, but I said, I caught it before it went to production. It was a jumpsuit from Elvis on tour because that was a Warner Brothers movie too. And I said, that's the wrong jumpsuit. And they said to me, well, what does it matter? It's Elvis in a jumpsuit. And I says, well, let me ask you this. If you were going to put out a VHS of The Wizard of Oz and it was Judy Garland in a song from Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, don't you think people would know? He goes, well, yeah, they would know. I go, well, the people that you want to buy this this VHS are the very people that are going to know this is not the right movie. Yeah. And so I kind of became the advisor to Warner Brothers on Elvis projects. I'm sitting in this meeting and all of a sudden, one of the people, uh, Todd Morgan from Graceland, who became a good friend of mine and passed away and God rest his soul. He was a wonderful guy. The fans are missing a wonderful man that loved Elvis. Mm. He stood up in this meeting and said, hot damn, we finally have one of our guys on the inside. Wow. Because, because over the years, they had been working with corporate entities and people that knew absolutely nothing about Elvis, but making money off of him. Can you imagine the way we are today? If that would have slipped by, yeah, and you wouldn't have caught that today, we'd be going. Can you believe, yeah, that that documentary had that? Yeah, and so that year they had a screening of the movie in Memphis uh, at the Orpheum Theater, and they invited me to host something at the Peabody, and then they asked if I'd. And this was not Elvis Week. They said well, would you be willing to come back in August and hope host a couple of things for us? And I was like, sure, I'd love to. What year was that? 2000. Wow. I think it was 2000 because 2020 was 20 years of me, of me doing that, of hosting events. Wow. So, and so that was it for me. And, and through all my um, stuff, when I was still at TCM, uh, I would use up vacation days to, to go to Graceland in August and, and, and host events. Um, and and for birthday also and you and i have talked about this just on the phone that we actually get paychecks that say i was pressing enterprises on it It, it's 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 crazy uh it's kind of funny tom you and i have talked about this when you're now involved and we'll get into this more later with the birthplace Mm -hmm. and all the things you do with epe in memphis and you'll be talking to friends and you'll say i can't believe i'm doing this and they've told you well of course you are yeah robert osborne uh the man who was the host of of tcm i was uh supposedly in the corporate structure i was his boss (laughs) and i'm like and he'd been on tv forever i used to watch him on cbs morning uh doing movie reviews when i was getting up to you know go to a tv station at seven o'clock in the morning. And I later became somebody that worked with him and he was a friend, a great guy. And, and I, I told him one time, I said, can you believe I'm doing all this stuff with, I mean, I, and he goes, well, Tom. And I said, I'm, I'm doing this thing and I'm hosting and I'm, I'm talking to Jerry Schilling and I'm talking to Priscilla. Can you believe I'm doing this? And he said, of course I can, Tom, who is better for this than you? He says, you've been preparing for a job that you never even knew would exist. And he, he was right because I always say if it was Bruce Springsteen, I would be a horrible host because I know less than nothing about Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. So I have been preparing. Uh, I like to think that I'm just a fan on stage doing an interview with a really good seat. Uh, I, I, I ask the things I know that we want to know and what we want to talk about with these people. 
and and try to just get right to it. And over the years, they've gotten to where they it went down the line. You know, I, I met Jerry first and then I got to know him and he trusted me with Priscilla and then Priscilla trusted me. And I think James was the first person I interviewed in the band. And I found out later he called the other guys and said, this guy's OK. He, you can talk to him. Wow. He, he knows who we are. He respects Elvis. He knows who we are. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Like I would talk to somebody and they would go, oh, you know, you know, James called. James was kind of my agent uh, on a lot of things. He was kind of the person making calls behind me that I didn't know about that was warning people. Oh, Tom Brown, he's okay. Talk to him. That is so great. There's a, talking about preparing for a job you didn't know existed. There's an article that was in my college newspaper. It was about me and I was really starting to, you know, make traction on the road and everything with my band. And the headline was student tries to shed Elvis image (laughs) (laughs) because everybody knew me as the Elvis guy. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I don't, I'm not Elvis. I don't want, I'm, I'm writing my own music. I'm trying to be my own thing or whatever. And then here we are. Everything I do is, is Elvis related. And, and all my friends are the same thing. They go, of course it is. Like they've known that since the eighties. Yeah. Imagine being the Elvis person in school in Tupelo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm in Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. I, I was working at the movie theater on Tuesday afternoon, August 16th, 1977. Mm. And when my phone rang and it was in the afternoon, the matinee had already started and the concession people were still kind of getting stuff done, kind of wrapping up for the afternoon. Cause we were going to close and then open back for a night show. And the phone rang and it was a friend of mine calling me saying, have you heard, Tommy, have you heard the news? And I'm like, what do you, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, I don't want to be the one to tell you, just go to your car and please turn on the radio. And I could tell she was upset. And I'm like, I, I, what's going on? And I went out to my car, my 1976 Mustang two <laughs> yellow with black leather interior and no power steering. Sweet. <laughs> I was very strong in the shoulders <laughs> because it didn't have power steering. But I went out to the car and I turned on the radio and Elvis is on. I was like, Oh, and I, hit a button and Elvis was on every station. And I finally heard somebody after a song say, you know, just, we just, we're just getting news in now that Elvis has passed away in Memphis. And I was like, what, what? Mm -hmm. And I went inside to pick up the phone to call her back. And the phone was dead and the phone was dead for about an hour uh, because the the lines were frying in, in Tupelo. And I remember walking back out and listening to the radio, trying to hear if you're like, Oh my gosh, this, Oh my gosh, I'm 17. And I, you know, I thought I was going to be seeing him in a couple of weeks. He was coming to Memphis and Ms. McComb had me tickets. I was going to see him in, in, in late August. He was coming. Memphis was going to be the last stop of that tour he was leaving on. And I remember walking into the back of the theater and watching the movie that was playing and looking at the people in the theaters thinking, you guys don't know yet. You, you, you people here, you just, you don't know yet. And I went back outside and picked up the phone. It was still dead all afternoon, got home. Cause I just had to, you know, rest for a while. Cause I had to work that night. My mother had a list of people that had called saying, tell Tommy, we're sorry. We heard the news. There's like 17, 18 people that called me with condolences. So yeah, I'm, I was the Elvis person, especially in my high school. Elvis passed away this summer of what would be my senior year in high school. Wow. And I kind of still measure things by before 77 and after 77. It's weird. Um, Everybody talks about where they were when they heard the news. You know, there's my story. But um, I still, I think about things. I used to, in the 80s, I would always think like, oh, well, Elvis Elvis didn't get to do that. 
Yeah. It was, oh, he would have loved this, you know, cell phones and computers and all that kind of stuff. Even in the eighties, things were, st- so to me, it's still, there's just, there's pre 77 and there's after 77. So in 2017, we had a big uh, Elvis week because it was the uh, 40th anniversary of his death. And we I did a lot of interviews with people. And I had a girl come up to me uh, and say, I just want to thank you uh, for, for these conversations. Uh, hearing about this has really helped me. Mm. And I said, oh, well, th- thank you. She said, well, I had to come to grips with something that I've never met anyone else that's experienced this. And she said, I'm an Elvis fan. I grew up my family. My mom listened to Elvis and I got into him. And she said, my, I was born August 16th, 1977. Wow. She said, that's my birthday. I've lived with that day my entire life, filling out paperwork and th- August 16th, 1977. She said, as an Elvis fan, it's always been sad for me to associate that with my birthday. And she said, this year, I got to let go of all that because I, I heard people telling stories about the man. She, this is the first time she'd ever been to, to Graceland, too. Yeah. And she was finally, imagine having August 16th, 1977. That's your birthday. Tom, uh, I know, obviously, I know this. You know this. Alex knows it. Uh, a lot of the, the people that we know that are listening know it. But not everybody does. When you said conversations, uh Explain what that is for those that, that that haven't been to Memphis and haven't been to Tupelo and don't know what you do there because it's really something every one of us envies you and maybe hates you behind your back because you get to do this and we don't. Tell us about what Conversations is. Oh, that's not true. Some of you hate me in front of my back. Uh, <laughs> in front of my back. Conversations is the is the umbrella name that Graceland uses for, for interviews that, that I do uh, because it's not really an interview. It's more of a conversation. Uh, with these people, people that knew Elvis, people, family members, Lisa or Priscilla, or uh, people that worked with him like Jerry or musicians that worked with him like James or Glenn D and Norbert and those guys, actors, directors, co-stars, I mean, all kinds of people. So Conversations is the umbrella title. I came to the Elvis world in 2000, having done hundreds of, of interviews with celebrities when I was an entertainment reporter in the 90s in St. Louis primarily, but then when I lived in Los Angeles as well and interviewing people uh, for their new movie they had coming out and, and doing that either live in the radio studio in St. Louis or interviewing comedians in the studio in St. Louis or flying on the weekends to these junkets, film junkets that they pay you to fly to Los Angeles and see a movie and then interview the movie stars the next day. It's a tough job, (laughs) but, um, it was. It, I always thought it was a cool job until my dad one time pointed out in the 90s. He said, son, you know, uh, your car was parked at the airport for three and a half months. Oh, no. He had totaled up the days I had been gone yeah. from St. Louis. And I would travel like three weekends a month. And there's really only four. And I'd leave on Friday at noon and come back at midnight on Sunday night. And I was on the radio at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. And then when I got off at 10 a.m. on Friday morning, I was going to the airport and flying to L.A. or New York. The good part was flying was a lot nicer back then. Mm -hmm. It was easier. And the beauty was St. Louis is right in the middle. 
So it was two and a half hours to Los Angeles and two hours to New York. And thank God for the greatest airline that ever existed, TWA. (laughs) By the time I left, I was a two million miler on TWA. And for those people that are travelers out there, boy, don't we miss that TWA L-1011. Oh, man, that was a great plane. You got stakes on it in first class with real silverware. <laughs> when was your first, did you come up with the idea for conversations? When was your, what was your first one? How'd that come about? Oh, they had me come and they knew that I could interview people. And they said, we're doing this thing. And and it might've existed before me with somebody else. I'm not really sure. Uh, but it, I, I was told that's what it was. Uh, and, and I, I said, well, that's good. Cause I'd rather have a conversation. You can prepare. I always, uh, prepared for interviews and then the interview kind of naturally, the conversation naturally flows kind of like this one. We have plans, but then <laughs> eh, we'll just go where it goes. And the person that you're interviewing doesn't know what order you've written the, the questions in. So you just, if you know the, if you know the person's life well enough, you can just ebb and flow where, wherever you're going. And it's always best to, to, uh, talk about things that they seem interested in as opposed to, uh, oh, let me go back and, you know, do this. No, you're, you're going out of order. Let me go back and start here. <laughs> that that's not good. I interviewed one time when I first started out, I was 25 or 26. I interviewed Phil Donahue, who was a great TV host back in the day when get this, he would have a talk show where he had an issue and he would have someone on stage that was on one side of the issue and someone else on stage who was on the other side of the issue. And they would talk about it and the audience would ask questions. And by the end of the show, you would learn what each person believed and you had all the facts. (laughs) Um, I interviewed him one time and uh, when we got finished, uh, they were tearing the cameras down and I, Phil Donahue is a legend and I'm 25 years old. And he said, I've I've got a question for you. Have you been doing this long, Tom? And I go, "Uh, no, Phil, I have not. Uh, Because he had already told me I could call him Phil by that time. So, Uh, And he said, well, let me give you some pointers. And he said, number one, um, the greatest thing that can happen when you ask a question is silence from the other person for a few seconds. Because that means you've just asked a question that's not on their prepared list of responses that everybody else asks. And if they're silent and you see them thinking, you've hit on something now, you've asked them something, they're they're going into their mind now, and what comes out of their mouth is going to be something that you spurred that thought. And he said, stay with that as long as they'll stay with it. Forget what's on your paper. You're going to get something that is new to them to talk about. Mm. And, and, and he, and he said, just, just those, that's my advice to you. Take time and, and talk to them and, and try to try to get them to think. So in interviews that I would have five minutes or 10 minutes with somebody, I would do the standard questions that they were prepared for to promote their movie. But I'd always try to find something, especially with Nicolas Cage back in the nineties. So let's talk about Elvis. And his, his, his head just kind of turned. I said, I, I hear you're an Elvis fan. And I brought him a, a button or something or T-shirt from the birthplace. And it became kind of a thing that we did at, at, at Junkets when I would interview Nick. I would all, he'd go, oh, it's Tom from Tupelo. Uh, wh- wh- what do you, what'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? And I'd have a pen or something that, that I would get from the birthplace that I would take to, to Nick. And th- again, this is in the days before Google, before Wikipedia. You had to 
read, I had files, but I, Jeff, I had files of movie stars and what they liked when I was 12. Wow. I was writing letters to movie stars when I was 11 and getting the addresses out of the, uh, books at the library, the resources at the library and writing letters to Jimmy Stewart at his house on, on Rexford Avenue and sending him birthday cards and Christmas cards and getting Christmas cards back from Jimmy Stewart. Mm. When I had so many things I had mailed out that every day the mailman brought me something from somebody It might be six months later, but I had pictures from actors that, you know, I would write them at the studio. I'd write them at home. And I just, like I said, I, I only had one thing picked out to do. I knew I was going to do this. And the best thing I ever did uh, was, um, my, one of my favorite actors was Jack Klugman because I love the odd couple. And when he was on Quincy, I wrote him a letter and my letter was like, I'm going to be an actor and I'm going to do this. And I, <laughs> and the picture um, I got back said to Tom, um, keep at it. And I know you're going to make it best wishes, Jack Klugman. Right. So 30 years goes by and I'm at TCM and we're doing a shoot. And this was after Jack had had cancer and his throat was, you know, his voice was rough, but we had him come to host a couple of movies and I told him that story and I, I pulled out the, I had the photo and I showed him and he looked up at me. I'm the guy in charge of this whole shoot now in my suit. And he looked up at me and he goes, give me a Sharpie, get me a Sharpie. And I was like, okay. And next to where he had signed it in 1976, you know, to Tom, I, I know you're going to make it, you know, hang in there. Um, Jack Klugman, he wrote, see, I told you. Wow. Jack Klugman. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, yeah. Tom, I want to go back. You talked about how an interview, you can have planned questions, but then you just have a conversation. One of my favorite stories of yours is an interview that I'm sure you had notes. I'm sure you had a question ready. And then something happened when this guy walked in, a guy by the name of Tom Hanks, who recently played Colonel Parker, as we all know. And every time I watch that movie, I watch Tom Hanks's performance and I'm more astounded by it. The more I watch this movie, I, I like, Oh my God. Uh, he, he captured everything Peter Grelnick talks about in his book. Uh, some say, Oh, he kind of was a caricature. Yeah. Like Colonel Parker, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, 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 he, his performance gets, even more subtle the more I watch it. But would you mind telling that Tom Hanks story? I think it's the coolest story you tell. It it was the uh, junket for Forrest Gump, uh, and the, the the cool thing of doing junkets was you would fly to L.A. or New York and and or anywhere really, uh, and interview the actors. You have seen the movie the night before, and this is in advance of the movie opening nationally. So you're seeing a movie before the public sees it because you're a news reporter. I was in St. Louis at the time, and I would, if I did interviews with Tom Hanks, it would be on TV in St. Louis. And if my buddy Dino Lolly did it, he would be in Oklahoma City. Uh, Gino would be in Milwaukee. Uh, Bobby Wygant would be in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, George Pinocchio would be in San Diego, who is now in Los Angeles. And that they did, it was, you know, by markets. And so we're doing the junket for Forrest Gump. And I had the cast of the movie that I had 10 minute slots with and I was over in the afternoon and this was the afternoon of the OJ Bronco chase in Los Angeles at the four seasons in Beverly Hills, which 
if you go to the top floor and look west, you can see the ocean, of which the 405 is just before the just before Santa Monica, before the ocean. Tom Hanks is in this room and has done 50 interviews, maybe. I'm his last interview of the day. Now, we all know this is going on out there, but inside the hotel, we've got we've got to do these interviews. So they have a TV in the corner that everybody's watching between interviews, and then they would turn it off, and then Tom would talk about Forrest Gump with whoever was in the room. I go in. I'm exhausted because I've been working all afternoon. Tom has to be exhausted. He's done 50-plus interviews. Right. The crew's exhausted because they've been in there the whole day with him. And I walk in the door, and before he says hi, he goes, have you been watching what's going on? This is amazing. This is amazing. And I said, yeah, I have to. And he goes, okay, we have to focus. Let's talk about Forrest. Okay. And we do that. And when the, when we get finished, they said, okay, that's a wrap for Mr. Hanks. He says, okay, turn the TV, turn the TV back on, turn it back on. And we look, and at the time we see the Bronco on TV, we see the Bronco on the highway. Obviously it's a shot from a helicopter. And then we see a shot that show all the helicopters up and, and I said, oh my gosh, look, they just passed Washington Boulevard on the 405. That's in Culver City. And he goes, what way are we facing? What way is this room? F-? We were on the top floor and the room had a balcony, but it was all blocked off with curtain because, you know, it needed to be dark in the room. It's late afternoon. I said, we're, we're facing west. He goes, tear that down. Let's go out there and look. And we, they opened it up and the sunlight hit us. And me and Tom and the crew, it was about four or five people, go out on the balcony and we look to the west and just southwest we see 20 helicopters in a it looked like vietnam i mean it was this this group of helicopters and it was slowly working its way up the 405 and tom is tom is looking at at the and and he turns back really quick and he looks at the tv and he turns back and he look he goes look they're there and they're there and they're there and they're there. He goes, we're going to remember this forever. We're going to remember this moment for the rest of our lives. And it, it's truly amazing. And so that was my, and I recently, I think I sent you a picture. I found the junket sheet that I had that had everybody's name on it. And it showed me last with Tom Hanks on that day. So six months later, I have to interview him for his next movie. And I walk in the door and I just said, Tom, you're not going to remember me. He goes, are you balcony guy? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Are you OJ balcony guy? And I go, yes. He goes, did I tell you we were going to remember that? For the rest of your life. And so the tag to that is I told Jerry Schilling that story. And Jerry was on a private plane flying from Los Angeles to Cannes for the Cannes Film Festival. And they're on the plane for like 15 hours or something. Yeah. And Jerry called me later and he goes, well, I can pretty much verify your balcony story. I said, why? He says, because, you know, after 11 hours, I run out of stuff to talk to Tom Hanks about. (laughs) So I tell him, hey, I got this buddy that has this story, you know, and he he goes, tell him I don't remember him, but I remember that moment. And he knows way too many details to not have been there on that balcony with me. So yes, tell balcony guy hello from Tom Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's I hadn't heard that part of the story yet. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, Jerry told me that that oh. he because he, you know, he, he said I'm sitting there. And I'm like I, I'm out of stuff to say. I'm just gonna start. Okay, I know Tom knew Tom Hanks. He did an interview with him, so I'll tell him that story, and that'll kill five minutes of the 15 hour flight. Oh my gosh! So it's 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 an interesting world, isn't it? It is. 